love the ability to do the things that I've done. I'm proud to be a citizen of the United States of America. We're by no means perfect. We've got some messed up things happen. I believe we're a sinful nation, to be the very least. But I do love this country. I dare say that should things come to a hard time, I believe that I would put my life on the line to defend the freedoms that we have, particularly those regarding our ability to gather together like we are this morning, to open up God's Word, to express ourselves. I'm grateful for those who have gone before us in the past and who have fought and who have died to give us the freedoms that we have, even the ones that we push back, that we ridicule, that we throw in the face of those. I don't like when people burn flags, but I recognize that they feel that they have a right to do so. I just wish they understood that people lived and died for that flag to give them that right. And perhaps maybe instead of expressing that right, they might see more of their responsibilities. Is there any way to take me down just a little bit? Thank you. As we look at the, the challenges with Ukraine and with Russia and Poland and all these other opportunities, and you have speculation after speculation after speculation, it is not difficult for us to be to a place to wonder what's happening. How long are we going to stay out of this fight? If you know anything of, of past history, you need to know it is not uncommon for the United States to, to slowly slip away before we have to get into a fight. World War II was a wonderful example of that. World War I, there's pieces of that too. We did all we could to stay out of the battle for as long as we could, and then Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. We did all we could to stay out of the battle, but then we started losing all these supply ships crossing the Atlantic, going over to Europe, and eventually at some point our allies called upon us, and we got into the battle. And when we got into the battle, we did great and terrible, literally terrible things to win those battles. We call them the greatest generation for a reason because that generation through World War II saw all kinds of things. Depression, inflation like you would not believe, food lines, bread lines, poverty, loss of homes, riots, desperation on many levels, and then a war on top of that, and a war on top of that. And every time we have been engaged in any sort of a battle in these United States, or in any war, any place else, it is not uncommon for one side, if not both sides, to invoke the name of God and declare God must be with us. We are fighting a righteous fight. Germany actually made belt buckles for all their soldiers that said, Gott mit uns. It looks like this right here. Let me show you. That Gott mit uns means God with us. Now, that's not the same Emmanuel that the Scripture says that God literally is with us where Jesus came and walked on the earth, dwelt amongst man when the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But this is the belief that Nazi Germany had that God was with them and that what they were doing was a righteous battle. Now, I don't know how you get there when you declare that God's chosen people, the Jews, need to be exterminated. But I guess if your propaganda machine works hard enough and you, you, you get into the minds of, of undeveloped young men... And in youth, and you start telling them that they're elevated above all, that they're a master race, that they're better than everybody, and this is what perfection looks like because God has therefore declared it. And by the way, this is not, this is not an original idea to Nazi Germany. It has been this way for a long time. The Crusades were a terrible picture of this, where the Moors or the, the Muslims were, would fight against the Christians, particularly the Catholics, who would go to Jerusalem, and they were back and forth trying to figure out who would dominate the city of God. And it would be comments like, God wills it, God must be with us, so we're going to go out and we're going to kill people in the name of God because he must be with us. Not to be outdone, our politicians of the day still do that. Joe Biden, for example, is one of those people, as well as Donald Trump. Look, look at this next, this next slide. And now together on eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. He's bringing it in from a psalm. and He talks about his son who passed away in 2015. But he declares that his presidency and all that he does, that God has ordained that to do. I know what many of you think about that. And I think it's hilarious that you think that way. I really do. 
And, and I am dogging you a little bit this morning. Not because I don't love you, because I want to get inside your head and maybe just rattle the cage just a little bit. To get you past the same mentality that said God is with us. Because you can't get on board when, when Joe Biden says that. But what about when Donald Trump says it? Show me the next slide. Trump promotes Christian theocracy, claiming we have God on our side, promises to put prayer back in public schools. That's great. I'm all for prayer being back in public schools. It didn't happen, by the way, just so you know. And it's a great campaign speech. And it's great to go out there and say, God is with us, that we have a holy battle, and that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans chapter 8, right? It is so misquoted in this belief that we somehow bring up the name of God. We've got to bring God into every conversation, and that we go out and do all kinds of evil deeds. But we are declaring that as long as we say the name of God, that he is with us because we are somehow a holier people than anybody else. I'm sorry, but on some level, you have to get to a place to say, well, if, if, if God is with us, who can be against us? The Ukrainians must be against God, right? Because why else? Or, or maybe, maybe, just maybe, God is with Vladimir Putin. I, I mean, when you follow the logic that says, I don't have a relationship with God, I don't know God, I don't trust God, I don't know his word, but if I use his name, then he's going to be with me, then you have to look at it and say, the victor must have had God with them, Right? I mean, that's the logic of the day. The victor must have had God with them. I don't know about you, but I don't think we live in a godly country. And, and, and I'm here to tell you, I think, I think that we could go up against anybody in this world and probably win that fight. But that doesn't mean God's with us. That just means that we got better weapons and we're, we're, we're more readily uh, 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 ready to use them. mittens it's it's not an uncommon thing and so it leads us to this question especially when we start looking because we live in a divided time more than any time i think we've ever seen in history particularly in these united states where everybody is pushing or pulling you to pick a side you're either if you're not for me you're against me right and it's just this battle of absolutes that goes to a place that, that we say, well, if you don't think the way that I do, if you don't believe the way that I do, if you don't vote the way that I do, then you must be against me. That, that doesn't give any room for me just to not care at all. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that because I'm silent on a matter or because I don't engage in that battle that that doesn't break my heart and that I don't care about it. It might mean that I'm smart enough to shut my mouth and not speak about things I don't know about. And that my voice may just lend to more noise that's going on out there. But really, the easier thing to do is just say, well, God's on my side, so that must mean you're wrong. And here, this is easy for me because I'm the pastor, and you're just a bunch of crazy sinners. God's on my side, always, right? Because if God is for me, who can be against me? Whose side is God really on? It's, it's blasphemy at the very minimum to ever, ever engage in something evil and say God's with us. It is this embraced hypocrisy even to say we're a holy nation. We're a godly people. God must be with us until you get your tail kicked. Was God not with you? Let me tell you something. There's not a mother who hasn't lost a child to illness or to war or anything else who didn't hope that God was with them. And just because it didn't turn out the way they did doesn't mean he wasn't. It's it's so funny that God seems to only be with me when he does what I want him to do and I get what I want out of him. It's like Zoltar, right? You remember the little thing you put the coin in and he would give you your, your, your future? And it was a bad future if he didn't tell you what you wanted to hear, right? It's like fortune cookies. I mean, why have Chinese food at all if you don't get a good fortune cookie, right? By the way, the fortune cookie was not Chinese. It's American. Isn't that funny? Yet another way to dupe people into believing something that doesn't really Whose side is God on? 
Is he on our side as Americans? Is he on Vladimir Putin's side? Is he on Zelensky's side? I mean, that dude's a hero. I'm not going to lie. He's a, he, I like that guy. I, if, if he would get citizenship and run in the next election, I'd probably vote for him. I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm serious. I like that guy. He's mouthy. He's arrogant. He's pompous. He says things that I can identify. I like that guy. But I know that even if he were the president of the United States today, he's got to deal with Congress. And guess what he'd get done? Goose egg. Why? Because both the Democrats and the Republicans think God's on their side. Is it possible that God is on both of their sides? Come on, get your mind there. Because I can see on your faces no, it's not possible that God can be on the side of such and such. Let me tell you how we got here to an extent. God delivers all of his people out of, out of, out of the, the house of slavery, out of Egypt, takes them through the desert, walks across dry land at the parting of the Red Sea. They get to the very edge uh, of, of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross into the promised land. They send in spies. Twelve of them go in. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do it. Two of them, Jacob, uh, excuse me, Caleb and Joshua say, we can take them. And, and the people say, no, 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 we're going to go with the majority because we're a democratic nation and we go by a vote around here, right? We're, we're going to put God to the side because the populace doesn't agree with the Almighty. Great plan. And the Almighty says, sure, no problem. I respect your vote. Wander around the desert for 40 more years until that generation dies. We'll have a new vote in 40 years. In the meantime, they, they, they train up this next generation. They bury a lot of people out in the middle of the wilderness. They get to the very edge, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I know, you've been, I know you're 80 years old now at this point, Joshua, and I want you to invade Jericho, but here's how I want you to do it. I want you to put the priest out front. Love it. This is awesome. No better shield than a man of God, right? I want you to put the priest out front, and I want you to march around the city and blow trumpets and then shout. Right, is that after the bombardment? Is that, is that with or without javelin missiles? I mean, how's this working, right? And before this all happens, Joshua's out of place to say, you know what? I'm a little nervous. I think that's fair. And so he goes out, and he encounters this man of God. In Joshua chapter 5, you, you can turn there if you want. We're going to be in Jeremiah 21 later, but I'm going to read this. This is what happens. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 and 15, it says, Now when Joshua was, was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua, he went up to him and he asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now, first of all, an unarmed 80-year-old man walks up to a dude with a sword. Are you on my side or not? That's bold. Makes him a good leader, right? Here's what he says. Neither, he replied. I, I'm, not, I'm not for your side, and I'm not for the enemy. Neither, he replied, but as commander, listen, of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for this place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let me tell you what I love about this is that it, it gives us two very important truths, at least just in these few verses. First and foremost, do not ever believe that God is on your side when he is always on his own side. And, and the quest is not to try to entice him to get in on our side. The movement is for us to get on his side. And so many times we have this pomp and circumstance and, and, and all these emotional things that we don't give our full heart to, but we give our tears to, thinking that God's going to be delighted in that. God's going to be delighted in that sacrifice when really what he wants is our hearts and our obedience. And we get to a place where we encounter God, or, or, or even worse, we just use his name because we're name droppers and say he's going to be on our side, and we encounter the commander of his army, and he tells us very clearly, I'm not on your side. I'm the commander of the Lord's army, not Joshua's army. So the first thing we see from this is simply this, is that God is always on his side. We're not, we're not trying to get him on ours. We need to get on his. And the second thing, and I think this is where we really miss it 
is that he says to him, where you're standing is holy ground, take off your sandals. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Do not bother to bring God into the conversation if you're not standing on holy ground. If you are not standing on the rock-solid truth of God's word, don't try to invoke him into your fight because you may not like the outcome. Don't stand with this false reverence. Kneel with the real reverence and take your shoes off and stand on the holy ground of God. It is not your presence that makes ground holy. It's God's. And when his presence has fully arrived and you're invited to stand in it, you ought to do so reverently. Not with demands, not with, not with, 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 with irreverence, not with arrogance, not with any other thing but to say that if the Lord has declared this land holy, which he did Israel, by the way, he did not America, just so you all know. And you take your shoes off and you stand on the holy ground that God has declared to be holy because what God declares is holy is holy, not what we want him to declare is holy is holy. And so when we ask God to be on this political side or that political side or this decision or that decision, or we de demand that God must be with us so that we can push some uh, agenda that somehow looks holy because God's name's attached to it, it's an outright lie. It's hypocrisy at the very minimum. It's blasphemy. This is not the case fewer things break my heart more than to see right now what's going on with with the pro-choice movement when they use god in the middle of this conversation forgetting that the creator made that life possible for you to take god must be with us so that people might have freedom that diversity may reign that we might have all these different choices to embrace sin in our everyday lifestyle because god wants us to be free you better believe he does, but he wants you to be free of sin, not free to commit sin. And that's why he sent Jesus. Abraham Lincoln is, is one of my favorite presidents, and, and in his second inaugural address, he was in the middle of the Civil War, and he got it right. And he said this, he said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Man, I don't know where we, where we went wrong after this guy, the one who, who, who understood that God wasn't on his side. Perhaps maybe that's why they assassinated him. But instead, what we realize is that he knew that we needed to be on God's side. And, and if you read his entire inaugural address, what you would see is that his heart broke for, for the north and the south. And he said that both of them called upon their God as they aimed their weapons at one another. Christians, we do the same thing. We aim our weapons at other Christians believing that God is on our side when really we need to be on his side. And we can't be on his side when we're pushing our own agenda. We can't be on his side when everything's about getting what we want. We can't be on his side when we can't even hear somebody else's heart. Doesn't mean they're right. It just means we gotta listen to them enough to even understand that, man, they're lost. And they don't need our rhetoric. And they don't need our noise. They don't need our political opinions. They need Jesus. They need to be on his side, not on ours. We don't need to win arguments. We don't need to win elections. We need to win souls. We need to do so through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not new, this place that we're in. Is God with us or is he for us? Is he against us? Is he on our side? Is America doing the right thing by staying out of the fight right now? Are we waiting for, for Putin just to get so far so we can decide to do this or that? I don't know those answers. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't care. Because it does not change the holiness of Jesus Christ. It does not change the sacrifice that he made for our sins, each and every one of us. And when we get so worked up about God being on our side on the politics, we miss that we're not on his side on what is right and what is true and what is good and what is noble. I could tell you more about what you think about a candidate and what I can tell you about who Jesus is. That's a fundamental problem. I like to be right. It helps that I am often anyway. But I'm going to tell you something, the arrogance of any people who declare God to be on their side instead of, to, instead of declaring to be on God's side, 
You deserve everything coming to you. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 21. I, I just, I love how we're, we're, we're a week off because I was out sick, but look what God did and put us right in the right place in the scriptures. Interesting, isn't it? And before I get too deep into this, I don't want to get to a place to say that we're going we're gonna to bend Scripture to fit into today's time. I'm going to tell you what Scripture says. I'm going to show you how we can apply the truth of Scripture always across every situation. What's going on at this point is that Jeremiah uh, is in Judah probably 30 or so years. He's been preaching the same message, and they've, they're really not happy with him at all. And he's gotten to a place where he's been banned from the temple. He's gotten to a place where he's been locked in the stocks, as we saw last week. We got to a place to where he continues to say things. And by the way, Jeremiah is not preaching because he has something to say. He's preaching because something has to be said. He, he's, he's not out there trying to make friends because I think about year three, he probably figured out that wasn't going to happen. So by the time we get to 30 years later, everybody hates this guy, but nobody can get rid of him. Isn't, isn't that, shouldn't that tell you something? I mean, we're look, we've got representatives who have spent 40 years in government and we can't get them out now my first mental place is to go dumbest constituents on the planet right they keep voting this person in but i'm 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 learning and changing thinking you get the government you deserve that god put these people in place for a reason as god does every government official by the way but if God's on our side, how are some of these people in office? Great question. Because he's not on our side. We need to get on his. So what's happening at this point is that Judah has a new king. And in the scripture, his name is Zedekiah. Now, his name used to be Mataniah. And the reason why his name used to be Mataniah is, at this point, Babylon has not yet invaded, but they've worked out a deal that they're going to be under Babylon and they're going to get water and supplies and famine relief from them, right? Does this sound familiar at all? And, and so there's a famine, there's a drought, hard times are economically are there. And so Mataniah becomes king, placed there by Babylon's king, a dude named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar changes his name to, to Zedekiah. And, and, and this is really actually pretty simple. When someone changes your name, they take possession of you. You are now their property. Which is really cool because Jacob's name became Israel after he wrestled with God. God changed his name. And when you look at, at throughout scripture where you see the changing of names, what you see is that they serve a new master whenever they get a new name. And so Zedekiah is now serving a new master. And, and, and I know this is going to shock you, but all the big wigs of the church and the temple and the civil leaders, they're all starting to get a little mouthy about Babylon. They're not liking this at all. You know, hey, I thought this was going to be a good deal for us. I thought we were going to get all this aid. I thought things were going to be better. I thought things were going to pick up. But, but, but you know what you ought to do, Zedekiah? You ought to rise up against Babylon. We're God's people. He's for us. He's on our side. And so here's what we'll do. I know we made a deal with the devil, but we're God's people. And so all we got to do is just say we're God's people and fight back, and he's going to be with us. The king hears word of this, chattering. And Zedekiah gets to a place to go, hmm, I might entertain that, but you know what we ought to do first? Let's go talk to that loud mouth, Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to pasture, son of Melchizedek, and the priest of Zephaniah, son of Mattathiah. And they said, inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that we will withdraw from us. I think this is hilarious. I mean, I, I want you to really see what's happening here. For the last 30 plus years... We've been mad, we've been angry, we've been frustrated, we've been disappointed with this Jeremiah guy that's just running his head and telling us to repent of our sins and telling us that God's going to judge us and that bad things are going to happen. We've just been going back and forth all this time for 30 plus years. 
But the, the new king, who is nothing more than just a puppet himself over here, says, I got an idea. Let's go ask God's man that we hate and have tried to kill if he will go inquire upon the Lord for us. And so if, instead of saying, hey, go ask your dad, no, no, you send the older brother to go ask dad for us. Hey, listen, I don't want to stand before God and ask him directly. Now, to be fair, it's the Old Testament, so they really couldn't do that. And so their only options were priests, who, by the way, were offering unauthorized sacrifices, who were worshiping pagan gods. And even the, the, the puppet king Zedekiah got to a place to say, you know, asking our own priests probably not a good idea because these guys are going to get smoked before the Lord. Maybe we should go talk to Jeremiah. And so he sends Jeremiah to go and ask God if he will deliver them from this vassal kingdom that they have. And Jeremiah does it. And I think part of him is this pastor's heart in him to say, man, the, the people are coming around. They're starting to show signs that they're hearing it. They're starting to have enough of famine and drought and pestilence and pain and poverty. They've had enough of this. And so now they're coming to me so I can go talk to God about this. And I, I, I want to believe Jeremiah was excited to go stand before the Lord. The only man eligible to do so in the entire kingdom of Israel could go stand before the Lord and inquire upon the people. Does that sound like anybody you know? His name is Jesus. The only one worthy to stand between God and us and petition on our behalf. And they said, you know, God has acted this way in the past. And so because he's acted this way in the past, we expect him to act the same way in the future. Now, don't take into mind that we're sinful, unrepentant people. Don't take into mind that we've been sacrificing our children. Don't take into mind all those things. Let's just focus on who God is and how he ought to behave in relation to our own behavior. Is any of this resonating at all? You get yourself in trouble. You get yourself in a place that you're overwhelmed. You get yourself to where it's more and more and more, and your first thought is not, let me repent of my sins and go before God. My first thought is to go to somebody else and have them to do that, and I'm still not going to change my ways. That's humanity. That's human nature. And that's what's happening here. And here's what it says in verse 3. It says, but Jeremiah answered them, tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hand which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. Listen to this, verse 5. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of terrible plague. And after that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, the sword, and the famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword, and he will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Wow, wait a minute, time out. I thought we were God's chosen people, right? I thought that he was going to come and rescue us when we finally got to the end of ourselves and figured out we couldn't get this figured out. But instead, what he said was, I'm going to fight against you. Now, how could that be? Are you telling me that God is now on the side of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as, as you might see in, in some of your, your passages, that God is on their side? No, I'm not telling you God's on the side of the Babylonians. I'm telling you God's on his side, and he's going to use the Babylonians as a tool to punish his disobedient, unrepentant children. And they're still not going to get it. Because they think they're owed or deserve something from God without any, any sense of bowing their heart to him. Is any of this looking familiar to you yet? Is this what happens when we think God is for us and we don't have to do anything on our own to accept that God has been for us all from the beginning, but he's not going to deal with our unrepentant sin? And the scariest place for us to be is on the wrong side of this when God says, not only am I not on your side, I'm going to fight against you. So how can this be? I mean, God put Zedekiah in place through Babylon, and he put Babylon over them. How could this be? Well, 
Romans 13 actually tells us, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. And so apparently God has put this person in position. Apparently God has let these politicians stay in place for 40 or 50 years. Apparently God has allowed some of these laws to go on the books and to be voted for. Apparently God has allowed Vladimir Putin to be the, the, the dictator of Russia. Apparently he's allowed Zelensky to be running around out there getting bombed in Ukraine. If God has established all these authorities and put these things in place, who's he for? Whose side is this guy actually on? How could I trust a God who would let his people just suffer this way so needlessly? How could I trust a God who put this, this king in front of me, who, by the way, a king's job in the New Testament is, or in the Old Testament as well as today was to go out and fight the battles on behalf of the people, to represent the people before God and man. And God put them in place just as he has every single ruler. And I know many of you really, really love Trump. He put him in place too, but he also put Joe Biden in place as well. And he did that by his own prerogative, but I also think he did that to punish us. Both of those guys, not just Joe Biden, okay? I know who you are. At the end of the day, I can really care less. I don't want to be on Donald Trump's side. And I don't want to be on Joe Biden's side. I want to be on God's side. That is the safest place for me to be, even in the midst of chaos and calamity, is to be on the side of the Lord God Almighty. There is no man that I can hide behind that my God has not already shielded. But God put these people in place. He established them. Consequently, Romans says, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. What? We're a democracy. We're a, we're a republic. We're supposed to stand up against oppression. We're supposed to stand up against those who do the wrong thing. You're supposed to bow your heart before the Lord God Almighty, and he'll work those things out. You're supposed to submit those things to the Lord and ask him, how can I honor you in following someone I don't like, I don't trust, I don't respect, who's probably going to get us in a war real soon? Because that person is not the one who has dominion over your very soul. That person is Jesus Christ. And that's who we ought to be submitting to, realizing that he puts people like this in place, whoever they may be, to punish his unrepentant children and to carry out the things that government ought to be doing, that the church ought to be doing, to protect the innocent in the middle of those. That includes women and children and those who are far from or do not know Jesus Christ. He puts these things in place in the hope that maybe possibly in the middle of the hard and the difficult and the challenging times we may look up and just say, you know what? I think I need God. I, 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 I've tried everything else. And I'm tired of politicians, and I'm tired of their rhetoric, and I don't trust any of them, and I don't believe in any of them. I, 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 where am I to go? I mean, come on, seriously. Look what's happening right now in our American politics. Who wants that job? Who could do it? I'm not running, by the way. Don't ask me. Even Nebuchadnezzar would get to a place after he exiles people in there. And Daniel 4 will tell us that he even recognizes that the glory of my kingdom has risen only because of who God is, the one true God, the God of light is. Even a pagan God, even one who worships false idols, can have God shown before him to realize that I'm not anywhere near the match of that guy right there. There's hope for Putin. There's hope for Trump. There's hope for Biden. There's hope for AOC. There's hope for, for who's that dude from Texas? What's his name? Looks like Cal Dracula. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Right? You understand what I'm saying? None of those things matter. We're talking about God. Look with me in verse 8 of Jeremiah 21. Because he's not done yet. Isn't that awesome? Imagine being the king standing there before that saying, hey, no, no, listen. I, uh, right, write your request down in the, the suggestion box. But let me tell you what God has to say. He's going to fight against you. And anybody who's in the city, if, if they don't die by the sword, it's going to be by pestilence and famine or they're going to starve to death, okay? Verse 8 says this, Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says, See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. 
They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Now, I love that last part. We're going to get into this just a little bit. I've determined to do harm to this city, and I'm going to do harm to this city through the king of Babylon who's going to burn it with fire. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know most of these places are built out of stone. And so what he's talking about is pulling out the, 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 the cedar cross members and the framing of the house that all got imported probably from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, and he's going to burn it to the ground. That includes the temple where God should be worshipped. But in the midst of all of this, he presents to them a really simple and a really hard truth, and it's this, fight and die or surrender and live. When I read that passage this week and I looked at the way of life or the way of death, all I heard was cease striving striving and know that I'm God. Stop fighting with me because you will not win. And yes, God is all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, but he's saying very simply, I'm giving you a choice. And you may not like the options, but it's better than no choice at all. But I'm giving you a choice. Stay and fight. Because if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them, by the way. Stay and fight or surrender and die. Look, they had already surrendered when they got under the kingdom of Babylon anyway. And now they're trying to get out from underneath that, expecting God to come rescue them from a bad decision they made, a choice they made earlier. And so when you, start, when you keep making bad choices, those who have authority over you stop giving you room to make more choices. You violate the trust of those who want nothing but good for you, who want help for you. But when you get to the place that God says, it's simply this, I've given you 268 years to to repent and to come back to me so you can fight and die or you can surrender and live. This is the, the way of life and the way of death. Gosh, that's a rosy, happy message. Listen. Is God any less loving is he, is he any less in control of everything when he finally gets to an ultimatum that you can understand? When he's opened up the doorway and said, I've given you opportunity, I've given you choice, I've given you chance, and you just squandered it. You've not taken it. You turned your nose at it. And so here it is, fight and die or surrender and live. I'm not going to get on your side of this. I need you to get on my side of this because I'm the only victor. And somehow they even know that. They know he's the only victor because that's why they sent Jeremiah to go speak to the Lord and see if he'll rescue us like he has in the past. And it's sad, but what he's saying is I'm only going to rescue those who surrender and are taken into captivity. And I'm going to preserve a remnant to bring them back to this place that I promised their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so what's really interesting about this is that Jeremiah would be accused of being a traitor because you don't surrender. There's nothing patriotic about surrender. And as we look at these things unfold with Zelensky right now, and we tout him as a hero, that he is fighting back to the very last person, I have to be honest with you, friends, at some point, all of that vigor and all of that machismo and all of that heroism, and even if he's right, he's going to get his entire country killed by a madman. And what will they accomplish? Now, I'm not here to settle that argument and tell you what's right or wrong, but I am here to tell you that on some point, the leader has to look and say, you know what? For the good of our people to survive, it may be wise for us to surrender. We may not like the outcome. We may not like what happens next, but it may be wise for the preservation of our people to surrender. In this situation, it was exactly what God was saying. But if you stay and fight, you're on your own. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Stop fighting against me. You can't win this battle. Stop asking me to lower my standards and get on your side when what you really need to do is come to my side of this equation. And so if God is not on our side, how can we be on his If God is not on our side, how can we be on his? I think the first thing we can do is don't make ourselves an enemy of God. 
we want to be on God's side, we need to make sure that we're not his enemy. We need to make sure that we're not doing anything that opposes him in such a way that there's no way he would accept us. Without Jesus Christ, none of us have the ability to stand before him. We are already rejected. It is only through his blood and through his sacrifice that we get to stand before him. That we are no longer enemies, that we are washed clean, that we're given new names, no longer sinners but saints. That we have a new master, that the old is gone and the new has come. But James chapter 4 tells us, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? To be an enemy with God is to reject him with purpose and with knowledge and to do so. And that decision is easier and easier to make the less we know of him and the more we, we resent him and hate him and ignore him. And for so many people, we talked about this this morning in our small group, but for so many people, all they see from God is this great big rule maker and they miss out the relationship. That instead of, uh, of, of God mit uns, of God being with us or on our side, it was Emmanuel, God with us. And that Jesus came down from heaven, he walked amongst man, and he endured every single thing that we possibly could imagine. And he overcame that for us so that he would be the perfect, blameless, spotless sacrifice for all of our sins. And he did so so that he could give his spirit to us to live within us so we can become more like him. But when we quench that spirit and we try to get God on our side, particularly when it's sin involved, we become an enemy of God. And there is no place we can hide from him. Jonah tried it. This is one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible to me. Jonah got on a ship to Tarshish to a place outside of the presence of God. That's hilarious to me. There's only one place like that, and it's a real place called hell. And I think it's going to be the worst thing about it. It's not going to be the fire, the brimstone, the gnashing, and all that other stuff. It's going to be the presence of God will be removed from there. And that is not his desire for us. And so don't make yourself an enemy of God. Repent of your sins. Come to him and let him change your name and your heart. Secondly, don't fake faith. Church, Christians in particular, this is exactly where I think we struggle. I think this is, this is the apostasy of the church right now. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Friends, let me tell you something. I've been called a lot of things, and I have a heart for those who are far from God or who don't know him at all. But I'm going to tell you something. What we're watching right now in these last days, because every day is the last day. We're one day closer to Jesus coming back, are these 18 things that are listed right here, and they're coming to fruition right now. And that doesn't mean that we shun people who think differently than us and that we send them out. What it means to us is that we love them in such a way to tell them the truth, but we cannot be intermingled with them in this world. We must be distinguished different than them. And while we can love people who practice homosexuality, we cannot condone or accept that as acceptable before God. And our relationship with them is not going to be us going before God and asking him to bless that. He's not going to. And he doesn't want to destroy anybody who is in their sin, but he's going to. And the reason is, is they fight against him instead of surrendering their life to him. And the option of the way of life or the way of death is that if you fight, you die. And if you surrender, you live. And if you'll surrender yourself to God and you'll put yourself under his authority and you give yourself to him and stop faking faith. Because in the last part of this, what he says here is having a form of godliness. We have these Christianese people, these people who just have a little bit of understanding of who God is, but they don't practice holiness, the set-apartness of God's chosen people, the ones who are sealed with his Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean they're perfect. In fact, they're some of the worst people you ever met, but they know it. And they know that they're forgiven. It doesn't give them license to sin. It helps them to understand that the power that sin has over them was only given to them when they submitted and surrendered to sin, not surrendering to God. And so we fake faith by putting on these personas of, I go to church. 
or I go to this church, or I go to this Bible study, or do all these things, man, that's great. I think it's awesome. I think anytime you get an opportunity to hear the truth of God's word, it's great. But if you don't believe it in your heart, and it doesn't change your life, you're faking it. And nothing, nothing refines the fake from the pure like fire. And God said he will come with the refiner's fire and the winnowing fork, and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Finally, the last thing I would tell you to do to get on God's side is not to reject God's offer. If God only knew who I was, God knows exactly who you are. That's why I think he's pushed you into a corner and said, fight and die or surrender and live. That's why I think he did that to Jeremiah's people. That's why I think he's still doing that today. I think that's why he's still presenting to us the truth of Jesus Christ. That's why he's still holding off. Friends, I'm not looking forward to us being in a war, but I'm telling you, every day we're not in a war, particularly a nuclear war, World War III, is one more day of God's grace and his mercy to call people to himself while we still have the opportunity to respond. I think it's one more chance for us to look and see that all the things we're dealing with are not new. They're the same kind of sins in the same kind of ways, but the same Jesus that can perfect that. The same one who forgives that. After Peter had gotten through preaching at Pentecost and he stood up and he says, devout Jews from every nation, listen and hear. He told them about this Jesus whom they crucified. Their hearts were pierced. So they said, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent of your sins and be baptized. As he continued to preach the next day, they were going up to the temple. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible where there was a lame man for 40 years had been sitting at the gate called Beautiful, and he couldn't walk. And people walked by him all the time. And he, he laid there on the ground with his hand in the air, not looking people in the eyes because you just don't do that. Unclean people have to stay aside. And he would ask for alms. And people would know who he was, but they wouldn't even look at him. They would just toss money at him. And Peter and John were there, and they said, Silver and gold have we none, but what we do have in the name of the Lord Jesus, get up and walk. And he grabbed the man by his hand, he stood up and walked, and he danced around in the temple. And this is the best part. He starts dancing around in the temple, and everybody starts realizing, hey, that's the homeless dude that's been here for 40 years. And he walked into the temple and worshiped for the first time because he was cleansed on the inside and the outside. But here's what Peter did. This is what made him such a great guy. Now that I have your attention, let me tell you about Jesus. He used that one miracle to tell them about Jesus. And when he gets to Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says this, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Huh, how about that? But this is how God fulfilled what, what he had foretold through all the prophets. You mean like Jeremiah? Saying that his Messiah would suffer. Verse 19, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their own people. Fight and die or surrender and live. Keep fighting the truth of God's word. Keep fighting God's call in your heart and you will find nothing but death. That is all that awaits at the end of anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. I don't know a happier, gentler way to say that other than tell you that God said, I will rise up and I will restore and times of refreshing will come for those who repent and accept the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to do. And every day I carry on, every day that I wait for this destruction to come, it's one more opportunity for you to repent of your sins and come to my son, Jesus Christ. That I sent him specifically for that reason. We started this morning in Joshua when I said to you that, that the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And I'm telling you, friends, I'm not sure that, that in our politics, in, 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 in our lifestyles, in all the areas of our life, outside of the segmented portion of our faith, I don't think we're standing on holy ground. But yet we want to bring God into unholy ground and we need to take our shoes off, get on our knees, fall before, not an angel, but fall before the Lord himself and put ourselves rightly standing on holy ground. So that 
when hard times come, when a battle rages up, when an enemy that is greater than us or one that can just inflict a whole lot of harm comes, we don't think about whose side God is. We know we're on God's side. There's no better place for us to be than there. And so this morning, I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to invite you this morning to pick a side, to figure out where it is you're going to be, whether you're going to be with God or against God, whether you're for him or against him, whether you're on his side or not on his side. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we have invited death into our life, and we do so more and more and more. And as Timothy said in his uh, in Paul's letter to, to Timothy, he spoke of in the end days that things were going to get worse and worse and worse. And Father, I believe we are living in a time right now where things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that yet still with arrogance, with foolishness, with pride, we engage in all of those activities. We embrace them. We, 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 we call them diversity. We call them them, them rights of people to steer far away from you. And Father, we as Christians actually use the wrong argument trying to, to force people into the kingdom of heaven. And, and Lord, I confess on first glance when I read through this this week, I looked at this and just thought how harsh. But Lord, I realized that at some point enough's enough. And that everybody has a, a breaking point. But Father, you have a plan that will be followed through. And you want people on your side to rule and reign with Christ forever. And so, Lord, I pray that we're not enemies of you. I pray, God, that we don't reject the one that was risen up amongst our people, amongst humanity who walked a perfect, sinless life so that we would be free from the shackles of sin. But Father, more than anything, I, I pray we'd be smart enough to realize we need to be on your side. And to get on your side quickly can only happen through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray for those that are far from you today, that they would come to accept that the more they fight, the more they struggle, the more they ignore and push back and rebel, the further they get from you, and the less likely you are to continue to extend to them an opportunity of redemption. What an unpopular thought that God would one day say no. But Lord, I know in your providence you do so. And so God, I pray for those people that are far from you. And Father, for the Christian who has allowed so many other things to divide his or her heart, I pray they get on your side today. That that would happen through repentance. Father, thank you for Jesus who brings us times of refreshing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to sing. I'm just going to simply invite you to make a decision this morning. Fight and die or surrender and live.